I invite you to into the spirit of worship this morning with uh, these words from Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing your praises. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness, for your promises are backed up by the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. For the glory of, the, of, of our Lord is very great. He cares for the humble and he keeps his distance from the proud. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the anger of my enemies. The power of your right hand saves me. The Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Let's pray together. Eternal God, we are caught up this morning in the joy and the promise of this new day and the power of the risen Christ cannot be put down and cannot be destroyed. The power of goodness and peace will ultimately rule over this broken world. Today we would cast aside our sinful nature so that the righteousness and love of God might dominate our thoughts and actions. May we hear in this hour the unshakable voice of Jesus speaking to us and then free us to accept the good news that Christ brings. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Teaching series called A Tale of Seven Churches. And we're focusing on the New Testament book of Revelation, uh, the first three chapters. Last week we talked about some of the background that's there for us in Revelation chapter one. And so that it will help us to understand Christ's message to these particular seven churches in chapters two and three. And if you weren't here last week and you would like to catch up, uh, we have a podcast on our website. You're welcome to listen to last week's message. That might help. We also have printed copies that are available out in the lobby area. Just stop at the information desk and someone can help you. But today we're going to focus on the first of these churches. It's the church at Ephesus, a church that lost its love for God and eventually kind of faded from existence. So helping to our congregation to hear and understand the truth of Scripture is a core value for us here at Redeemer because we're, we believe that we're called to not only connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ, but to help us to understand what that looks like and to live that out in our families, in our community, in places where God puts us. And uh, to do that, we want to fill your life with God's Word and because it is God's word that energizes all of our words and all of our actions. So next week, we're gonna be talking about the church at Smyrna. It's a church that endured a great deal of suffering. And I'll be honest with you, there are a couple of messages in this series uh, later in February that are more difficult. Maybe they're difficult for me to preach and they're gonna be difficult maybe for some to hear. Uh, so I'm inviting you to be reading ahead in chapters two and three of Revelation. So you get a flavor of what each of these uh, letters are that Christ is addressing to the church. And I think that we're gonna learn a lot in these next few weeks and uh, I hope that you'll uh, be here. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we talk so easily about being a church where love and friendship and warmth are felt and we like to think of ourselves as a place where everyone is welcome. But we know our welcome cannot stay confined to these walls. We're called to adapt attitudes and 
hospitality to others who may not return the favor. We're called to be willing to take the risk uh, to, to be hospitable in our workplace, in our homes, in our community, everywhere we go. Uh, you reached out to people who were in all kinds of conditions, and many of these people had been rejected by their society, by their families. They were in need of compassionate love and friendship. So Lord, as you welcomed us, regardless of our faults and failings, let us also welcome others in your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If Jesus were to visit our church, I wonder what he would say about it. Would he be impressed by the things that impress other people? Would he comment on our building? Would he mention the size of our congregation? Would he notice how much money has been given in the last week's offering? Would he feel like an outsider? See, pastors always get a little bit nervous when someone said, I visited your church last Sunday and it's what comes after the and that we worry about. But if, what if Jesus dropped by? I remember the first time our bishop just dropped in unannounced several years ago. I wished I had worked a little harder on my message that day. Many years ago, John Stott wrote a great little book called What Christ Thinks of the Church. And it's based on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And the book itself is excellent, but it's the title that caught my attention. What does Jesus think about the church? What does he think about this church, the church we attend? Thankfully, we're not left to wonder about the larger question with this series that we are focusing on. Uh, we're gonna see seven letters to seven churches and the letters are short, and we're calling this series A Tale of Seven Churches. But in these seven letters, our Lord pays a pastoral visit to each of these congregations in the first century. And in each case, he tailors a message that is specific for that congregation, in that place, at that moment in history. And these were all actual churches in Asia Minor, which is now the western part of modern-day Turkey. These were churches that were struggling with persecution and with the temptation to moral and spiritual compromise. And some, like Smyrna, that we'll talk about next week, faced more persecution than others. Some, like Thyatira, faced great issues of moral debauchery inside the church. And the church in the most enviable position economically, Laodicea, receives the harshest warning from our Lord. So reading through Revelation 2 and 3 is like reading someone else's email. These are real churches filled with real people struggling with real problems. And though 2,000 years separate us from them, their issues are not a whole lot different than ours. And as we go through these seven letters, my sincere hope is that we will see ourselves and our church in a new light. We need to know about these churches because it's easy to think that as long as the church is busy, everything must be okay. I've had plenty of time to make that observation because all of my 41 years of ministry has been pastoring in five different local churches. And as I continue to work with other churches, my heart breaks 
for when congregations are unhealthy and lack vitality. I do remember many times when I've wondered how are we really doing? And it's hard to know how to answer that question when you're in the trenches. Churches tend to evaluate how they're doing by the numbers, counting money and counting people. And those two things do matter. The money we give says something important about us. The number of people who show up says something important about people everywhere because people vote with their pocketbook and with their feet on any given weekend. So we measure our churches a lot of times by those two metrics. But you know what? Jesus evidently doesn't. That may be a bit of a shock to us. So what is Jesus looking for when he comes to church? Well, these seven letters provide an important answer. So with that as a background this morning, let's jump into the first one. The first letter went to Ephesus, a major league city in the ancient world. And because of its location as a port city on the shores of the Aegean Sea, it was in many ways the, uh, the marketplace for Asia Minor. It was also home to the Temple of Artemis, also called Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Three major roads met in Ephesus, making it a gateway to the Roman provinces to the east. The city was a bustling cosmopolitan center, a place where the Apostle Paul spent over two years establishing this thriving church. And later Paul wrote the New Testament letter of Ephesians to this congregation. Over the years, the church had been taught by the Apostle Paul, by Apollos, by Timothy, and eventually by John. Hardly any church in the first century had it so well. The letter from Jesus opens with a reminder that Jesus is fully qualified to write these words. Look at verse one. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are those seven congregations. And this is a good word for beleaguered pastors and church leaders everywhere who feel like they're under the microscope constantly. Never fear, we are held by the Lord himself. He knows us, he sees us, and he has not forgotten us. So there was much to celebrate about this church at Ephesus. Verse two, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now this is a congregation that had great energy for the Lord. This was a busy, hard-working, service-oriented church. They didn't just sit around patting each other on the back. They were eager to serve the Lord. They had a church calendar that was filled to overflowing with events and programs and ministries and meetings and a whole variety of outreach in the community. But that's not all. We're told that they would not tolerate false teaching. We would hardly ever hear that said about a church today. If someone says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, they're widely regarded as a bigot. 
Let a Christian teacher speak out against same-sex marriage. And in many places, they will almost certainly get into trouble and may even lose their job. You see, today it's much more fashionable to keep your views to yourself. After all, we don't want to risk offending people, the very people we're trying to reach. In the church of Ephesus, evidently, they didn't have this problem. They, they tried the false apostles and they threw them out of the congregation. They also rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitans were a strange group in the early church that taught that freedom in Christ meant that you could have freedom to sin with impunity. You could do whatever you want, and it's all okay. They wanted the church to be religiously pluralistic. They wanted to hook up with all the paganism in the surrounding culture. And the Nicolaitans were the ones who compromised on sexual purity, saying things like, hey, my body's mine. I can do with it whatever I want, and I can still be in good standing with God. Note that Jesus actually says he hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's a very politically incorrect statement for Jesus to make, isn't it? The popular viewpoint of Jesus in our culture today is that he loves everybody and would never hate anyone or anything, but but that Jesus is not the Jesus of the New Testament. So in addition, this church had endured great persecution and we're told that they did not grow weary in the midst of that. The church in Ephesus had a lot of enemies, nothing was really, and nothing has really changed in 2,000 years. Today, we, Christianity, uh, is under assault all over the world. Today, we read about Coptic Christians in Egypt being killed by the police. Several years ago, an Iranian pastor was in jail having been sentenced to death by, for becoming a Christian and refusing to deny his faith. And his eloquent letter from jail was posted online. I want to read you just a portion of that letter. It said, when what we are bearing today is a difficult but not an unbearable situation because neither has God tested us more than our faith and our endurance, nor does he do such things. And as we have known from before, we must beware not to fail but to advance in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and consider these bumps and prisons as opportunities to testify in his name. We might call that an Ephesian faith because it's exactly what our Lord commends in his message to this church. What a great church it was. It was hardworking, it was Bible-centered, it was courageous, and it was filled with folks who could take the heat and not give up. Who wouldn't want to be part of a church like that? But there's more to the story. When Christ looks at a church, he looks beneath the surface to the underlying reality. And in this case, all the good uh, the church was doing was overshadowed by a sad reality. They had left their first love. They didn't love Jesus very much anymore. Look at verses four and five but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. 
Somehow, in the middle of all their busyness and all their standing for the truth, somehow, somewhere along the way, they had left Christ out of their church. Is that even possible? Well, it must be possible because that's what happened here at Ephesus. And we wonder if Paul might have sensed that problem 30 years earlier when he wrote to the Ephesians in uh, chapter three, verse 17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love for us. Did Paul sense way, way back at the beginning that this great church might someday be lacking in the love department? Here's the saddest part. Christ knew that they didn't love him anymore. And perhaps as John was writing these words of Jesus, he remembered another time many years earlier when Jesus asked the apostle Peter, not once, but three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was embarrassed and ashamed because he had just betrayed Jesus in the courtyard and he blurts out what all of us probably would have said, Lord, you know I love you. What happened to Peter could happen to any of us. And I suspect that what happened in Ephesus is even more likely among us how easy it is to substitute knowledge for a warm heart toward Jesus. How quickly we justify our hard hearts by pointing out all of our well-intentioned religiosity. I ran across a quote recently that seems to apply to the Ephesians and maybe even to us. And here's the quote. We can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. I think think that's what happened at Ephesus. They got distracted. Their schedule was busy, their schedules were full, they were going here and there and doing everything. But they got distracted and away from Jesus in the process. They lost him. But Jesus won't be fooled. In verse five, he gives them a simple yet challenging prescription And he says, remember how it used to be. Repent, change your mind, change your heart, and repeat the first works. Now that strikes me as an extremely sensible prescription because it assumes an important spiritual truth. We don't regain our first love overnight. Ask any couple who has gone through a marital crisis and a marriage doesn't deteriorate overnight and it isn't restored overnight. Healing takes time. So it is in the spiritual realm, and it all begins with a good memory. Look how far that you've fallen. Pondering what we once had can be a good thing if it leads us to practical action. And I've been told, uh, I've often told people who are struggling spiritually that they just need to take tiny steps toward the light. If you keep walking in the right direction, soon you'll walk out of the darkness that you're in and into the light of God's love. But we'd all prefer a quick prayer that makes everything better all at once, wouldn't we? In this age of instant everything, no no one of us wants to wait on anything. We want the quick fix that will instantly make everything right. And the words of Jesus remind us that while healing is possible, it has to begin in our heart, in our mind. 
when Jesus met a man one day who was an invalid for 38 years, Jesus asked him a penetrating question. He said, would you like to get well? (laughs) What kind of a question is that? To somebody who's been ill for 38 years, would you like to get well? Why would Jesus ask him that? And, And I think Jesus is really probing at the level of the will. And he's saying, do you really want to be changed? And if the answer is yes, then miracles can take place. And if the answer is no, not even Jesus can help you. See, we all face the same challenges today. Are we so comfortable with where we are that we really don't want to change? And if so, then Jesus has nothing more to say to us. But if we feel the stirring of God within us, then we will do what Christ prescribes in Revelation 2. We will ponder our past blessings. We will repent of our self-centered living and we'll do the first works again. I find it fascinating that Jesus really doesn't specify what those first works are. And it's tempting for a preacher like me to give you my favorite, you know, top 10 list. I would include Bible reading and prayer and meditation and being in worship and all those good things. But when asked to name the greatest commandment, Jesus summarized the whole law in two sentences. He said, love God with all of your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe that needs to suffice for us too. If we do loving actions, then soon loving feelings will follow. We often tell unhappy spouses, act as if you love your spouse even when you don't feel like it. And we say that because it's easier to act yourself into a new way of feeling than it is to feel yourself into a new way of acting. But we must not skip the solemn words of Jesus in verse five. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. See, the lampstand represented God's approval on the church itself. No church has an unlimited claim on God's blessing. Any church can have that lampstand removed by the Lord. So let me ask a question for which I have no answer. How does a church know when its lampstand has been removed? I might suggest that the church itself could possibly never know because in one sense, nothing changes. God would simply take his hand of blessing off that church, but things continue. As usual, the preacher preaches, the choir sings, the lights are on, the sound system works, Sunday school uh, meets, the ushers collect the offering, the worship team leads, people clap, people pray, teens have their get-togethers, but God's not there. It would be a religion without reality. Preaching without power, a church without Jesus. And it's a sad fact that the church at Ephesus eventually ceased to exist. This once powerful, large, busy church ceased to exist. It simply was no more. But perhaps that is better than to continue as a church when Jesus is absent. And so we come to the ultimate question. Are we as a church listening to what God is saying to us? Each of these seven letters includes this sentence, and we see it in verse seven. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Do we have ears to hear, or are we too distracted by all the stuff that the world has to offer? The Christian faith is a religion of the ears of hearing. 
hearing the word of God, hearing God speaking to us. And the question is, are we listening? The message to the church at Ephesus ends with a promise to the, uh, those who overcome. And it's also found in verse seven. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The word paradise speaks of the personal presence of God. The word paradise speaks of uh, a repentant spirit. It's the same thing Jesus promised to the repentant thief on the cross when he was dying, when he promised, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. If we are faithful in this life, we will know Jesus intimately in the next life. No one really knows or can say exactly what that means, but it must be wonderful. In that day, we will never regret having loved the Lord in this life. If we love him here, we're gonna love him all that much more there. And if we rejoice here, we're gonna rejoice all that much more there. To those who are faithful, Christ promises an intimate fellowship in paradise sustained at the tree of life through all of eternity. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Let me close with a quick story. During a period of illness in 1856, Elizabeth Prentice jotted down a poem that she later showed to her husband who published it in a pamphlet. And a man by the name of Howard Doan saw the words and he put them to music that became a beloved gospel song. The hymn is in our hymnal today, but the first verse expresses her earnest desire. And here's what she wrote. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. The second verse describes the prayer uh, the church at Ephesus really needed to be praying. And it says, once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest, now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. The second line in that second verse sums up so much of what we need to hear today. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. And as we end this study of this message to the first of the seven churches, let it be in the spirit of this old gospel song, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the spiritual instructions we have in your word, but also for the warnings that help to keep us looking to Jesus. And we pray that our devotion for you will not grow cold, but that in all things we will become more and more thrilled with the wonders of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. May our love for you start to reflect in some small way the love that you have shown to us. Thank you for the many privileges that are ours in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.